0: This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, December seventeenth, two 2017 at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The reader is Lindsay Beebe. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com.
1: text comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is God's word.
0: Amen. You may be seated. Please keep your Bibles open to Isaiah 11. We are in an Old Testament Christmas, which just simply means we're going through parts of the Old Testament, particularly the book of Isaiah, as we celebrate Christmas, the advent or first arrival of Jesus. And so I'm going to pray and ask that the Lord kind of moves me out of the way and says what he needs to say, if you'd bow with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your greatness. We praise you for your grace and for your generosity. You are so good to us, Lord. We are broken, we are lost, we are rebellious, and yet you chased us down grabbed us by the back of the collar and brought us into your family through the blood of your Son and our King, Jesus. Lord, we have little to offer you, but you have given us more than we could ever deserve or imagine, and so we are here to worship you. Lord, would you move me out of the way, and Holy Spirit, would you speak the words that you need to speak, words of conviction or words of comfort, words of, encouragement or instruction. Would you help us all to see the glories of God in the face of Jesus Christ? And would you help us to find great hope in the Lordship of Jesus? Thank you for this day. Thank you for what you are doing in this church and in your church globally. Let us be reminded that we are part of a much larger story, that this world is not all there is, and that this first arrival, Lord, that we celebrate this month only points us to the great second arrival where you will make all things completely right, and we look forward to that day. It is in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. So Christmas is about many things, but today we're going to focus on the arrival of God's King. But I've wondered much this week as I have studied if the concept of a king is kind of lost on us in Snohomish in 2017. I did a little bit of research, which doesn't take much these days, that out of the 195 countries that exist today, there are only 26 monarchies. Now America, as you may know, if you don't, here's your little history lesson was founded by a monarchy. And the people who left that monarchy or ran from that monarchy or sailed from that monarchy really were rejecting the rule of this one man whom many believed was the divinely appointed supreme law of the land. They didn't want a king to rule them because of one big problem. Sin. Having a sinful man lead always is going to prove bad. So instead, they pursued this thing called democracy with a president who is himself governed by a supreme law of the land called a constitution with its checks and its balances so that the president never became a king. Power and authority would not be localized around just one person who rules, but a people who rule themselves. The only problem with that is sin. So it's not that we don't have a king. It's that we just traded one king for 308 million of them, which doesn't get any better when you have 308 million sinners trying to rule A sinful nation. But in ancient times, when you talk about a king, a king functioned as an absolute monarchy. At least most of them. The king was empowered with supreme authority. He was, or it was thought, filled with supreme wisdom to judge right and wrong. And then he was endowed often believed divinely so, with supreme power to make sure that anything that went wrong, he could make right. Supreme authority, supreme wisdom, supreme power. And these kings literally governed nearly every aspect of the lives of their citizens. Some might argue it was more like slavery. So when a king was conquered by another king, the news would spread that a new king had taken the throne and what that meant was the conditions of their life had changed. They may not fully understand what that meant, but it literally touched every aspect of their lives. So when a new king came in, that means that there were new rights to enjoy, or lose there was new homage new payment to give to somebody new and there were new rules by which the kingdom would be governed now we talk about this often and we will talk about it a lot on Christmas Eve but the gospel is that kinds of news the gospel of Jesus Christ is The good news. And it's the good news of a king. The Gospel is not advice that we're to follow. It's not instructions. It's not things we need to accomplish. It is the declaration of a new king is now on the throne and the conditions of the citizens of that kingdom have changed. But most kings today, when you think about the kings that you may have heard of, the kings you might read about, the kings you know about, they function, it seems, at least in my opinion, like kind of powerless figureheads, almost figureheads of pop culture. Like the the role of the king in the lives of, of England or others, it seems kind of meaningless. It seems kind of silly. Like just this tradition that they have, this nostalgia that they celebrate, that doesn't really have genuine influence or effect on their lives. And so my concern is that we are so removed in Snohomish in 2017 from the concept of a king that I wonder if sometimes when we talk about King Jesus, if we really fully understand what that means you see the idea of the rule of one king or the rule of 308 million of them for that matter is ultimately rooted in something very dark it's not just this, this institution that's created for, for practical purposes. It's actually a very spiritual thing. It is a rejection of God as absolute ruler of all of life. And it takes its different forms in different places. The very idea of a king is the rejection of God's rule. We need to understand something as, as you read the Bible and you begin at the beginning, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And when you get to Genesis 3, you read about Adam, this guy who disobeyed God. And you need to understand that his disobedience was more than just an unfortunate mistake. It was rebellion against God's authority. And there was nothing intrinsically bad about the fruit. Who knows if it was really an apple? I like to imagine it was some weird freaky fruit that he took off this tree and you know sung, ate somehow whatever weird thing but it didn't matter what it was god told him don't eat from that tree and he could have told him anything he could have said never ever pick your nose for in the day that you pick your nose you shall die And the tempter would have come along and said, hey man, I know you're having trouble breathing. If you just kind of go in there and start digging, you will breathe, everything will be better. No, the Lord said don't. No, 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 he doesn't know what he's talking about. Stick your finger, and he's going, right? And he's being tempted. And we go, oh, come on, it's just picking your nose. It didn't matter. What mattered is that God said don't. What mattered is what God declared. What he said was right and wrong. What he said was good and bad. What he said, don't cross this line. So Adam's disobedience was rebellion against God's authority, but it was also denial that God's word and wisdom was the right path. It was a spiritual mutiny to usurp the throne of their lives and take it and rule. And men's efforts to rule themselves ruined the world and it continues to ruin it today. Even God's own people. God's people who were, you know, freed from the rule enslavement of Egypt. God's people who came basically into the wilderness and God's people who were led by God's very presence in a very visible way God's people who crossed into the promised land and battled and God basically fought for them and they won and after Joshua the general died different men arose as the men as the people fell into idolatry and they would come and they would rule and they would lead for a time and then they would be okay and then they would Fall into sin again, and a new leader would come. And after a while, you had this one guy left over named Samuel, who was the prophet who led for God. He wasn't a king, he wasn't a ruler, he was speaking for the Lord. And they came, God's own people came to Samuel and said, Hey, we we see these other nations, and they all have a king, we want one too. And Samuel was very reluctant. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Lord told Samuel, Obey the voice of the people who are calling for a king. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. I'm not sure the Lord ever called himself king before then, But that's what was happening. They were rejecting God's rule. They were rejecting God's wisdom. They were rejecting God's power and looking at the world saying, we want to be like them. So the book of Isaiah is written to a people who are living under the threat and shadow of this grand Assyrian empire. And they, at this time, are led, God's people, by a very corrupt king. But they are waiting and hoping, and Isaiah is proclaiming, for a coming king. A future king. A better king. A greater king. Christmas is about the arrival of that king. It is the beginning, if you will, of God's mission to reestablish His rule, not just in Judah or Israel, but in the world. But I'm not sure we view Christmas like that. I mean, we, we can appreciate The arrival of Jesus as Savior, as Redeemer, as Friend. all those feel so good and warm and fuzzy and awesome. But the arrival of Jesus as King! Well, that's a little more difficult concept to understand, but maybe even more to accept because if Jesus is King, that means something in my life. If we're talking about Kings with supreme authority, with supreme wisdom, and with supreme power. So as Isaiah chapter 11 comes about, it's an interesting time. He's writing at a time when Judah's king, Ahaz, has made a deal with the Assyrian king in hopes of being saved from these other kings. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. What he doesn't realize is that as he makes a deal with this Assyrian king to save him, that's the very king that's going to destroy him. And what he doesn't realize also is that Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 10, proclaims that Assyria is God's tool. Isaiah chapter 10 says God is going to use Assyria to deal with his people's idolatry. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 10, he says, He, Assyria, is my rod of anger. I'm going to use Assyria like an ax to chop down my own people so that they are little more than a decimated forest. That's part of Isaiah's prophecy. I don't think that probably felt good to hear. And then, as you read, again, Isaiah 10, you start to see that, but Assyria itself... In all its pride and power, though God will use it to chop down his own people, I will also chop down and it will be little more than a felled forest. I'm going to chop down my own people and then I'm going to chop down the people who chop down my own people. Assyria will never rise again. But through my felled forest of my people, I will bring resurrection. A king will rise. Now, if you look at verse 1 of Isaiah, of which I realize my Bible's in Psalms, which is not going to help us. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, has some interesting words in it. After talking about these forests falling and being chopped down, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. you got a stump, you got some roots, and you got a shoot. Interesting language. Makes a lot of sense as you read the Old Testament and God speaks about his people as a vineyard and trees that he's planted. Use that imagery often. But the stump of Jesse, what does that even mean? Well, we're talking about the authority of the king. Like there is only one king who is going to possess the authority of God and that king will rise from this people who are decimated, Israel. Will come from a stump. Now a stump is not a good thing if you're expecting great growth. But from the stump there are these deep roots in this dude called Jesse. Unless you read your Bible a lot or enough, you're like, who is Jesse? Isn't he the grandpa and the Dukes of Hazard? Like that's, I remember Jesse to be like, some of you are like, the Dukes of what? Like, come on, where's your 80s culture? Come on. It's not who we're talking about. Jesse was the father of David. This is royal language, though it doesn't seem like it. It's royal language. He was the father of David, the great king. You know, many years earlier, David, when he was on his throne and he's wanting to build a house, the temple for God's kingdom and his, his presence, he is told this Look, your house, David, and your kingdom will be made sure forever before God. Your throne will be established forever. That's a bold statement, right? Or says, David, your throne will reign over the world forever. Now, it's possible that Israel, as they're experiencing the decimation of their nation, and as they see all their kings fall and become nothing, and their people amount to little more than a stump, they might have some doubts that that's possible. But do we not realize that as you read the scriptures you begin to see like that's exactly how God works almost all of the time. He takes something that is glorious out of something that seems hopeless. Something that is living and active out of something that appears to be dead. That's how God works. And why would he ever do that? Why would he take his own people down to a stump could it possibly be so that we will have our eyes turned to the Lord and see, oh, you did this. Not I. Not them, not the circumstances. You did this. You are the only one who could possibly have done this. We get so frustrated with our circumstances sometimes, so, so overwhelmed with how evil or ugly or hard and oppressive things become, not realizing that that's when God shows up. That's when God, as you reach out to him and say, I don't know what's going to help and you like, good, now I can work with you. I'll show you how it's going to come about. talks about the stump, the situation. This says, but these roots are there, these deep roots that can't even be seen, but they're the roots of Jesse. You realize that this king that, that comes forth is going to be worthy in the eyes of God because he has been chosen by God. Israel had seen, at this point, I think 30. There were 39 total, but kings rise and fall, come and go. Some came through appointments of men, some came through weird um, civil war situations. Some came through just conquering and taking and stealing the throne. But that's not how David came to the throne. Jesse's son David didn't choose or seek to be king. He was not voted in by men. He didn't take the throne by force. God sought him, and God chose him and God empowered him. God overlooked all of the nations in all of the world and he chose Israel. Not because he was special, not because he was prettier, not because he was stronger, because I just chose you. And then he overlooked all of the tribes in Israel and he chose Judah. And then God looked overlooked all the families in the tribe of Judah, and he chose Jesse, this guy from Bethlehem. Not because he was special, not because he was the strongest or the best looking, not because he was such an amazing parent who raised awesome kids, because God chose him. And even in the family, he comes to Jesse's family, he overlooks seven other sons, and he chooses the one that's not even around. The youngest, the smallest. He was qualified simply because he was appointed by God. He became king because God made him king. The root of Jesse was not just another king. He was going to be another David. The one whom God himself, not men, not his brothers, not anyone, God himself described as a man after my own heart. The root of Jesse would come. A king like David would come. He would be worthy because God had deemed him worthy. And yet, he would be a shoot of Jesse. What is that? It's a sprout. A little teeny plant. Unworthy in the eyes of the world. Who looks at a stump to find new growth? No one looks at a stump and says, Man, you just wait. An amazing tree is going to come out of this dead stump. But even when a little sprout comes out, you don't go, Oh, can't wait for this to be big. You go, It'll never be like it was. There would be many who thought over the years that they could identify the future son of David. I mean, after all, David should be pretty easy to identify. He was the guy who killed the giant with little pebbles. The guy should stick out. He was the guy who led like these 300 special elite warriors and did the most amazing things. Should be pretty easy to find. He was the one who established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel at a time when that was just an amazing feat. Like, okay, we should be able to see who this king, future son of David, is going to be. But the truth was, they expected a great man to rise, but he would be totally unimpressive. He would totally unworthy in the eyes of the world. Do we forget that God's wisdom is foolishness to the men of the world. And if that's true, then God's men are going to look like fools to us. He would have divine roots, but He would be the small, little, insignificant shoot that you would ignore if you were not told. Or even perhaps if you were told. Isaiah 53, again, staying in the same book, The first couple verses. He says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, speaking of this future king, this future son, this future Messiah, he grew up before him like a young plant. There's that same imagery. Like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Do we really understand that Jesus was unimpressive in every way? For 30 years, no one even gave him a glance. And even when he began his ministry, people said, isn't that just Joseph's kid? We like to imagine that like, you know, if we played basketball with Jesus, he'd be like, yeah like, you know, just like he just throw the ball up and just like magically get in the hoop and be perfect in every way because he's perfect. Like such a silly thing. When he was on earth, I'm convinced he probably made crooked tables, right? Because it wasn't like, be like, yeah, Jesus, I mean, he's not the king of Israel, but man, he's the king of bookshelves because he can make an amazing bookshelf. Like what if he didn't? What if he was a really cruddy carpenter? Like if his mom was really bugged that he couldn't even fit the cabinets in the house, right? Because he just was like, well, he's a carpenter. I mean, he's supposed to be like dad. Unimpressive in every way. Not good looking, not charismatic, nothing. That for 30 years he could be in relative obscurity and no one knew who he was. You know, when Samuel was searching for the king, he came to Jesse's family and he thought for sure that it was one of David's brothers. He walked in. His brothers were studs. Like walks in, he's like, "Hey, who are you? Oh, I'm Samuel, looking for." Oh man, you're a big dude! You saw Bryce up here? Like Bryce is like this, right? It's like, man, that guy, that guy's got to be king, right? No, not him. Really? Okay. What about this guy lifting weights with the goats? Like, just like, hey, what's going on? Right? And You're like, man, that, that guy's got to be king. Seven brothers. And the Lord tells Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees and man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. God is the one who chooses his king. God is the one who says, this is the one who has supreme authority to speak for me and rule all and his name is Jesus. He is the son of David. The one king possessing all the authority of God. You know what Jesus says? One of the last things he says to his disciples, all authority has been given to me. Do we understand all authority? Like authority over what? Everything? The Lord is the one who exalted Jesus. But few were impressed with a king who couldn't even save himself. See, Jesus is admired today by many as a martyr. But a hero who tragically died. A respected teacher. But king? King? Oh. I want a big king. I want a powerful king. I want a strong king. I want a victorious king. What God deems as great is completely opposite of what the world deems as great. God's king was a servant who came and rescued us from the true enemy we had. And his first throne was a feeding trough. A little shoot. What kind of king would he be? He would come out of an unworthiness that we would never expect. So every time a king rose to power in Israel, they weren't sure what they were going to get. Right? You had 39 kings, like, okay, what's, Let's see what this one's going to be like. And with few exceptions, the kings were evil or stupid or just overall bad because they didn't follow in the ways of David, a man after God's own heart. About Ahaz, the king at this time, the Bible says that when he came to power, he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, like his ancestor David, but walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. It's in 2 Kings 16. He didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord like David. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. See, the kings of Israel didn't succeed. The kings of Judah didn't succeed because they didn't possess the Spirit of God. So they did what was right in their own eyes, led by a spirit of power, led by a spirit of greed, led by a spirit of self, led by a spirit of whatever. And here's the rub of it all, right? You think I'm talking about those kings out there. But I fooled you in the beginning. We have 308 million kings in this world. We are all kings trying to rule our own lives, trying to do what we believe is right in our own eyes, not concerning ourselves with what God says is right. We don't have, it's not that we don't have a king, the king is ourselves. When David became king, Samuel took the horn of oil. This is in 1 Samuel 16. That was how they anointed the kings, and he anointed him with the midst of his brothers. And in that moment, it says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. It didn't say that about the other kings. David was a king of character because David was filled with the spirit of God. David wasn't just a man of character who was just, oh, he's just a really good guy. There are none good, not even one. But when the Spirit of God comes upon someone, when the Spirit of God transforms someone, when the Spirit of God leads someone, they possess the character of God, and that's what David had. This future king, it says in verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And what that simply means is that because this individual, this king would be led by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit, he could be trusted unlike any other king. Why? says that he would have a spirit of wisdom and understanding. He would have a spirit of counsel and might. A spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He possessed a spirit of wisdom and understanding. He could could discern what is right. That's what wisdom is, right? It's being able to look at a situation and see beyond what you can see, hear beyond what you can hear, and with wisdom judge rightly. Beyond appearances. Unlike earthly kings, he would be able to judge right and wrong accurately. Justly. And therefore his royal words, his royal declarations, his instructions, his rules could be trusted as right and true. We could trust his word. But it also says he possesses a spirit of counsel and might. What does that mean? That he would make perfect plans and he would possess the power to bring them about. There's nothing worse than a king that can make grand declarations but can do nothing to bring them about. But the king, filled by the spirit, God's chosen king, his plans would be certain not unreliable guaranteed his promises would be assured there would be no weakness that could hinder him and no enemy that could thwart him what he says he does what he promises comes about that's the kind of king we need the kind of king you want i can trust his words are right and then i can trust he will make it right It says he'll possess a spirit of knowledge and fear that has nothing to do with intellect. He'd not be full of knowledge as much as he'd be the one who would know God, the one who would fear God. In fact, as I said, verse three says the fear of the Lord would be his delight. He would delight in revering and respecting and honoring the Lord, he would love God and His ways. And that can only mean that his devotion to lead, his commitment to lead, was not based on his own self-benefit, but on the glory of God. That's what all the other kings would come, led by a spirit of greed or power, wanting to accomplish whatever. He was led by desiring to honor the Lord. We could trust his motivation. We could trust why he's given his word. We could trust when he says, do this, it's for our good. It's for God's glory and for our joy. The king, God's chosen king, would know God He would make him known and he'd be clothed, it says, in righteousness so as to build a global kingdom that would reflect the rightness of God across the world. Now, let's be honest. Again, keep thinking, oh, talking about those kings, those people who are like us. When we rule our own lives, you can see it reflected in culture. People are more concerned as they rule their own lives with their personal rights than they are with God's righteousness. What can I do? What do I deserve? What do I get? As opposed to God's righteousness. God's king, God's only king, God's chosen king, empowered with his authority, filled with his spirit, he will be more concerned about his people's holiness than he was their happiness. Why? Because he believed that the pursuit of God's holiness actually produces this unfading happiness called joy. See, we rule our own lives in the pursuit of happiness, not realizing that kind of happiness is rooted in circumstances. The kind of happiness is the thing that can be taken away given a new king coming into town. But when we pursue God's holiness, we receive this abiding joy that comes from submission and obedience to the one who knows what is right and can make things right. And it talks about his rule in the most powerful way in verses 6 through 9. Like you got this, this one chosen by God, this king who's coming, who's going to be filled with the character of God unlike anyone before him. And as he's filled with the Spirit, he will rule by the power of God, right? What does verses six through nine say? It's this strange, both future picture and yet present picture. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion fatten calf together, and the little child shall lead them, the cow and bear shall graze. And their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What an amazing picture, but kind of a weird picture unless you read it really carefully. You're talking about what, what the rule of this king looks like. What his power looks like. We know where his authority comes from. We know where his character is rooted in. But where does, what happens when he starts to rule? It real, if you read it carefully, right before this, in verses 4 and 5, it says, in order to bring about his rule, in order to conquer the power of wickedness and to free the oppressed, he has no greater need for any greater weapon than his word. He's not like other kings. Just as the world was created by the Word of God. Think about that. You read Genesis 1 and 2. You have God speaking. His Spirit hovering and things happening. Let there be lights. Let there be planets. Let there be stars. Let there be land. Let there be cows. Let there be people speaking creation with a Word. Do you realize that just as the world was created by the Word of God, the world will be recreated by His word? That's how the king rules. It doesn't seem very powerful to us, but it is the very or most powerful thing in existence. It gives us a picture of what this is like. like. you got wolves dwelling with lambs. Think about that. Wolves eat lambs, right? That should go, huh? That's different. Leopards lie down with goats. Don't see them skipping together very often. Leopards and goats seem like that's bad. Lions eating straw. Wait a second. Lions, last time I checked on Discovery, are ripping the throats out of gazelles and feasting. I don't see many of them eating straw. I don't remember bears chomping on grass unless they're emaciated and there's no deer to eat. Children playing with snakes? Well, I believe this isn't very much a, a literal picture, a, a glimpse of, of God's kingdom and its fullness and eternity. It's also a, a figurative picture, if you will, of God's kingdom right now, of what happens in His rule. So, so listen to this. Like right now, insofar as creation, and I know even when I say creation, you think of mountains and animals and grass and stuff of natural creation. But let me be clear. You're creation. There's only two things in existence. Creator, creation. We ain't creator. So insofar as creation... All things, including people, come under the rule of God's King. Insofar as you come under the Lordship of Jesus, governed by His Word, you will experience the fullness of God's restoration. That's what happens. When you to align your life to God's Word, you begin to be restored to how creation was supposed to To be. Not just making it better. Making it new. Like, what you see in this picture is the king restoring relationships, right? The wolf and the lamb. There's some tension there. Kind of like family stuff at Christmas time, right? You think of like, oh, I'm going to have this Christmas feast and there's going to be lots of lambs and wolves there. Tension, brokenness, ugliness. Like, oh, elephants in the room don't want to talk about it. I don't want to, are you coming to Christmas? I hope not because I hate that you hurt me and blah, blah, blah. Right? Relationships. And at Christmas time and holidays, it just comes to the forefront like, oh, we're going to be at a table with them. Do you realize that that's one of the things God intends to restore? And I don't mean just then. I mean Now. Insofar as you submit yourself and your relationships under the lordship of Jesus and his word, he's going to restore that brokenness, restore that hostility, like get rid of it. He also says restoring God's designs, right? Lions are eating straw. Well, I hope you understand that before the fall, lions did not rip the throats out of gazelles. Lions ate straw and bears ate grass. So, what is this a picture of? Like, it's God restoring back to his original designs. Like, what are the big questions that, that people are asking? What's a man? What's a woman? The biggest problem, the cause of all of that, is a world and a people who have rejected their king, who are rebelling against the lordship of God who says, This is right and this is good. Do as I have designed and things will go well for you. And he says, I'm going to restore all of that. Creation itself with earthquakes and all the brokenness, which just doesn't seem to work the way it's supposed to. Our own minds where it doesn't seem to work the way it's supposed to. He's going to restore all that. And he also has this restoration of peace, right? You have the infant and the serpent. And again, you read Genesis 3, there's a lot of symbolism there, right? The serpent and the seed, The serpent, the enemy of God is always going to be in conflict with the seed who ultimately is Jesus, but God's people. He says, it's going to be fixed. We know that our king conquered Colossians 2. We know that he defeated sin and Satan and death. And we're beginning to see, yes, that the penalty of sin is gone. We see the power of sin being removed, but the presence of sin one day will be completely extinguished. That is the work of the enemy, to bring corruption, and the work of the king is to reverse it. It reminds me of Revelation 21.5. Now, I've tried to get through the passion of the Christ at Easter every year. I've only got through half of it one time. It's hard for me to watch. I got through it in the theater And I try to watch it with my kids and it just just breaks me. It's so visually powerful. And one of the most powerful things is when Jesus, our king, in his purple robe with his crown of thorns, is being whipped and he's being beaten by hands he created. Being mocked and spit upon by tongues and mouths that he created. And doing nothing. But that isn't what breaks me. What breaks me is when he's carrying his cross and he stumbles. And he looks over and he sees his mom. And he says, Behold, I make all things new. That's Revelation 21 5. Revelation 21 5 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne. The king saying, behold, I make all things new. Do you realize that God in Christ has declared that one day he will make all things right, but that right now he is making all things right. It reminds me of the end of Return of the King. Fantastic series. Pretty good movies. But the writer Tolkien so I'm going to spoil it for you. It's been out for like 25 years. Uh, so more longer than that, really. So don't get bugged. But, you know, it's this huge, epic story about evil and good. And evil gets vanquished. And, and the sentiment is, is probably best captured by, by Sam. By Samwise, right? Frodo's right-hand guy. And after the ring has been destroyed at Mount Doom, sorry, just ruined it, But after the ring has been destroyed, right, and evil's been vanquished, Sam wakes up and he's surprised that he's alive, and he's surprised to see Gandalf, and he asks a question. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Now the statement's really profound, right? Because it's it's very different than asking like, well, are good things going to come? Are good things going to come true? He's asking whether the sad things that have come about are going to become untrue. That's what we talk about when we say the king reversing the brokenness of creation, bringing us back to this place, this Eden, where we dwell in the presence of God, free from the brokenness that comes from sin. And Israel, right, They trusted and they were waiting for the arrival of a king who would set things right because they saw very clearly that things were wrong in their world. And he came to his own people. The shoot. And they rejected him. And in the most Beautiful, cosmic irony in Matthew 27 or 26. As Jesus hangs on the cross, they put a sign above his head to declare his crimes and why he's being crucified. And what does that sign say? King of the Jews. He died being identified as the very person that he was. And he rose again to show it was true. That he was king over sin. He was king over Satan. He was king over death. He was king over all. And he ruled. And he's on his throne. And now, just like they waited for his first arrival, we await for the return of the king to set things completely right. To fill the whole world, as verse 9 says, with the knowledge of the Lord that we now have in Christ. So Christmas is about the arrival of our King. And so the question for us all is to say, how should we respond to the one, the only one who possesses the authority of our Creator and God, the only one who possesses the fullness of the wisdom of God, the only one who has the power of God, who is the power of God, the Word of God incarnate. And no one can have a "Eh," response to Jesus. There is many of us who will celebrate the arrival of Jesus as Savior, but the arrival as Jesus as King, that's so hard to accept because it means I have to live differently. Jesus is king. That's not some old truth. They're like, oh, I'm glad the Jews told us that. That is a living truth, an active truth. Jesus is king now on his throne, ruling and reigning and one day returning and living with Jesus as king means bowing to him right now as his, your supreme authority in all of your life. And if Jesus is not supreme authority in your life, if Jesus is not the one that tells you what is right and wrong, what is good and bad, where you should go, where you should not go, what you should do, how you should live your life, you're not a Christian. You can't just say, Jesus is my Savior and not be your Lord. He's King. He was born as King. He died as King. He's returning as King. And so living with Jesus as King means that He rules every part of, of your life, not just those things that are easily to relinquish ownership of. Everything. When you say Jesus King over all, King of kings and Lord of lords over all, that's all. Your time, your money, your relationships, your job, everything. Everything. He wants it all. He rules all. And insofar as you live under His Lordship in all, you will experience restoration. And insofar as you reject, oh, you can't have that part. You can't have that part. You'll experience the brokenness that comes from rebellion. Living with Jesus as King means trusting that His Word is right. Even if it feels counterintuitive, even if it Clearly, is countercultural. It is believing as Jesus, King Jesus, said in John fifteen, right? I tell you these things, these commandments about obedience, so that your joy will be full. It's believing that living with Jesus as King I means believing that He really rules and that He really reigns, and that though I can't see or understand how his kingdom is unfolding in my life. I know that his kingdom is unfolding in my life and that the king whose word can be trusted, who has all authority and all power, is making all things new. It's believing that. So as I close, I feel like the best response we have during Christmas is epitomized by a bunch of pagan kings who came from the East. Yes, wise men, magi, kings who came from the east, which biblically speaking in Scripture, all the stuff that comes from the east is usually sinful. Like the dark stuff. And yet these guys had it figured out. You can read it in Matthew 2. You should read it very carefully. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews for we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him now I hate to break this to you your nativity scenes are all jacked up the wise men were not there on the day he was born he is probably toddler Jesus at this point a little bit older but they come after his birth so you can take those wise men just put them in another part of the house and get a little like Barbie doll baby guy that's kind of walking and there you go Make sure he's not blonde-haired. So Herod, the king, who really isn't a king, says, Oh, yeah, I've heard about that. Why don't you find him so I can worship him too? Liar, he wants to kill him. So after listening to him, they go on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them, which is, right, pretty awesome. Until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, now they hadn't even seen the king yet. When they saw the star, just the expectation of seeing the king, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Does that describe your Sunday morning? Oh, I know I'm going to church this morning. Gonna hear about Jesus, I expect going to sing to Jesus, I expect. I can barely contain myself. I am so joyful to be in the presence of the king. And Yeah, right. But they're so excited to see the king that they've never met. Because they know what a king is. They know who a king is. Verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child. So now when we were praying, getting ready for the service, I literally was looking around like, okay, you're pregnant, you're pregnant, your wife's pregnant. You're like, who isn't pregnant in this church? I was like asking, like, nobody be pregnant, like, you know, whatever. Like, so I know that we understand what it means to have a toddler. And toddlers are the most beautiful demonic things in the world, right? And <laughs> They get into stuff and do stuff and say stuff and it's just messy and whatever. Like, that's Jesus right now. So these grown men, dressed to the nines as kings, walk into a house, probably a little messy. Mary probably wasn't expecting them. And what do they do? They fell down and they worshipped King Jesus as a toddler. We struggle worshiping King Jesus who died on the cross and rose again. These guys are worshiping King Jesus, the toddler, who clearly, in an earthly way, can do nothing. And then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Like, they sought the king. They wanted to see the king and they rejoiced at the idea of seeing a king. And then, when they saw the king, they bowed before him and they. Gave him. This is not a sermon to like, oh, hey, make sure you give this month. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about the idea of Jesus as king has got to touch real life. If it's just this idea, it may as well be the Queen of England. Like, oh, yeah, we got a king, long live the king, queen, whatever. But if He's King, it means something. It touches your life. It means you live differently. You spend your time differently. Your money differently. He's King. He rules all. The moment of salvation, right, that instantaneous moment is a radical transformation where you receive Jesus as Savior. But there's an ongoing reformation when you live with Jesus as king. Like, yes, yes, a baby changes everything in a moment. But a king changes every other moment after that. I pray that this Christmas season you'll remember, yes, Jesus is Savior, but he is Lord and he is king, and he is ruling, and he is reigning, and it is a good thing for him to govern your life because he is the one who has the authority of God, the wisdom and character of God, and the power of God to make all things right, which is what we all need. Amen? Let's pray.